The title, as you all know, is The War on Karma. And the question is, who's waging the war and what is the war? Um, essentially, one of the main paradoxes of Buddhism's coming to the West is that the teaching on karma, which in Asia is probably the most basic Buddhist teaching, is the one that most Westerners don't like and is most often dropped from the teaching in one way or another. Um, you look traditionally, though, that karma, even back in the time of the Buddha, was probably taken as the first teaching that people should understand. It's in the definition of right view, the belief that we experience happiness and pain independent on our actions, independence on our actions. And when the Buddha himself was defining his teaching in contradistinction to other teachings that were alive at the time, karma was the teaching that he would focus on. His understanding of how human action gave results as opposed to other people's understanding. And we'll get into the details in that in a few minutes. And it makes sense that given that his basic message is that in order to gain release from suffering, you have to depend on your own efforts. It makes sense that he's going to have to talk a lot about what human action is, what human action can do, why it can do it, and why he feels that it has the potential for leading to an end of suffering. So even though he's famous for not dealing with metaphysical issues, this is actually one metaphysical issue that he takes on in quite a lot of detail. However, as this teaching comes west, there is a campaign of what... It's hard to tell whether it's disinformation or misinformation as to what the teaching was um, and whether it's intrinsic to the teaching or not. And even if it is intrinsic to the teaching, there's a question of whether it's really relevant to our practice as we practice meditation and practice the other teachings. A lot of the problem comes down to, I think, basically misinformation about what the teaching is. You, um, the Buddhist teaching on karma came to the West at the same time that other teachings on karma came from India. And we tend to get them confused. It's like saying you know, the Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics all taught ethics, therefore it's all the same teaching, because they use the same word, ethics. In the time of the Buddha, people talked about what human action could do, and they used the word karma for action. Um, and so it's, it's understandable that most people in general might be confused about the nature of the teaching. However, you often find people who are actually writing books on the topic giving out misinformation. One book I was just reading recently was saying the Buddhist teaching on karma essentially means that the pleasure and pain you experience now is based on your past actions. Now, the Buddha himself quite clearly and repeatedly said that you know, that was a wrong teaching. Other people at the time were teaching that, and he said, no, that there's, there's really no basis for this. It doesn't make sense. And yet, as I said, even people who are writing books on the topic will accuse the Buddha, or credit the Buddha, as, as the case may be, um, with this teaching. So one of the points we're going to have to go over tonight is why that's a misunderstanding. Secondly, there's a, another intellectual misunderstanding in terms of what the purpose of the teaching is. Many people think that the teaching is based on pointing back to the past or pointing off to the future. Pointing back to the past for the sake of, say, blaming someone if they're suffering. Okay, well, you deserved it because something you did in the past. And the word deserve never appears in the canon. People suffer, but the Buddha doesn't say they deserve to suffer because of past actions. Um, so that's another point we want to take up, is what, is what is the purpose of the teaching? Why did the Buddha teach about karma? 
And then the third reason for misunderstanding is that we don't un- realize how to relate to the teaching emotionally. You know, it sounds like a teaching, one, laying a lot of guilt trips on people, two, teaching a lot of defeatism or fatalism. And we don't like either of those, and with good reason, because the Buddha himself never taught those attitudes. But for many people, as soon as they hear the teaching on karma, that's the emotional reaction they get, and they want to get away. So those are some of the issues we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, as for the actual attack on the teaching of karma, it comes in four ways. One is just the attack on the content, saying it's a bad teaching. Secondly, there's the attack on the provenance, where the teaching comes from. Basically, saying, And the basic attack is that somehow it got picked up from the Buddhist environment in India back around the time of the Buddha, kind of willy-nilly. And because it was, it was like you know, bringing along a plant and you've got some dirt attached to the roots of the plant, that the, the dirt really doesn't belong there and it wasn't really intentional. Um, a third way of attacking is focusing on the fact that t- karma is taught as something that you have belief in. The Buddha never tries to prove it in an empirical proof. He has a different kind of proof, which I would call a pragmatic proof, and we'll get into that later. But some people say, well, Buddhism is something you don't believe, it's something that you do, or that anything that the Buddha insisted that all of his teachings were based on empirical proofs. Therefore, you can't prove this empirically. Um, It's a belief, therefore, it really doesn't belong in the Buddha's teachings. That's another mode of attack. And then finally, there's the attack on what's saying that there are suspect psychological motives for wanting to believe in karma. A childish belief in wanting to see things all explained, a childish belief in wanting to see things um, fair. And that it's also basically a childish desire for something consoling. It feels good to figure out, think that, well, maybe I'm not going to die. Well, if I die, that's going to be the end of me. Um, and as a result, this becomes a f- grounds for complacency. So I'd like to point out, okay, there are four ways that the teaching is attacked, and I'd like to take on each one of them one at a time, because I'm going to fight back in the war in karma. <laughs> These terrorists are attacking us. <laughs> But I'm not going to do anything about our fundamental rights, okay? <laughs> okay, first, content. Um, essentially, the, the war on karma says that karma is a deterministic teaching, that what you experience now is totally determined by the past. Um, it gives no room for free will. And as a result, it justifies the status quo. And if somebody is in power, then they can claim, okay, I'm in power because I deserve to be in power and you don't have any right to overthrow me. Um, also, some people say because it's deterministic, it will justify evil actions. Again, the government says it's in, it's in power, it has the right to do this, therefore it's going to go ahead and torture people in Guantanamo. A third reason people don't like the idea of a deterministic teaching is that it's psychologically unhealthy. Little children get abused, and you say, well, I'm sorry, that's, you, know, you did something horrible in a previous lifetime, therefore you deserve to be abused. It places large, a large feeling of guilt on the kids. And finally, there's that whole issue of whether someone really deserves to suffer. How fair is it that the idea that something you did in a past lifetime that you can't even remember comes back and hits you now? So, one problem with the content is the idea that it is deterministic. Secondly, another problem is that it doesn't fit into the context of the teaching of not-self. If there is no self, what did the karma? What's going to receive the karma? How does it get passed on from one lifetime to the next? 
And then finally, there's the question of whether it's extrinsic to the practice, because it seems to focus attention on the past or on the future and not on the present, which is where we know the real practice is, is supposed to be aimed. So I'd like to take each of those attacks one by one. The first one is simply that you know, the Buddha never said that your past, your pleasure and present, excuse me, your pleasure and pain in the present moment are totally dependent on the past. As I said he, earlier, he rejected that belief. Um, his attitude towards your experience of the present moment is basically composed of three things. One, there's results of past actions. Secondly, there are your present actions. They have an impact, a huge impact, on what you're going to experience right now. And then third, there are the results of your present actions. You don't have to wait until your next lifetime to experience good results. You spit into the wind, it comes right back. You don't have to wait until next lifetime to have this saliva come around the universe and finally whap you. you know. <laughs> so, what this means is that because you have room for present input all the time, there is an opening for free will. In fact, this is, this is the thrust of the doctrine of, of karma, is that it's not just actions coming from the past, it's your actions that you do in the present moment. If you're dealt a hand of cards, you have a, your choice in how to play the cards. And in fact, this is where the Buddha is going to focus all of his attention and say, okay, there are certain things that you cannot change because they come from the past, but there's a lot you can change because of what you're putting into the present moment. And this is going to determine whether your experience of that input from the past is painful, pleasant, um, the extent to which it's going to be painful or pleasant. You can take it as an opportunity to suffer, or you can take it as an opportunity to overcome suffering. So there's a huge room for, for free will in the present moment. In fact, the Buddhist teaching focuses on the fact that most of us don't take advantage of that fact. We tend to go on automatic pilot. We tend to just react to things in old, habitual ways without realizing that we can change our habits. This is what mindfulness is all about. You can check yourself as you do something and say, okay, what I'm doing right now, is it causing pain? Is it adding stress onto this situation, or is it helping to relieve it? The more mindful you become, the more you fi- and the more you focus on the issue of what your intention is in the present moment. And this is what karma is. It's your intention. What your intention is right now can totally change the situation. And that's, um, that's the main thrust of the teaching. So it's not a deterministic teaching. At the same time, it's not chaotic. There are patterns of cause and effect that are relatively stable. In the other sense, the sense is if you do something, if an action you do with a certain type of intention will lead to a certain type of result, either in the present moment or on into the future. Now, precisely how that's going to get worked out, it turns out, is dependent on many factors. Um, one of which is the quality of your intention right now, but it's also dependent on the quality of your mind when you receive the result. Um, there's a passage where the Buddha talks about, say you, you, say you did something really bad, okay, and you're going to be getting the results of that. Well, if in the meantime you've learned how to meditate and you've developed a, an attitude of goodwill for all <coughs> beings, he said that's going to alleviate a lot of the bad impact of the past action. So you're not totally exposed to your bad actions from the past. Because most people, when they hear karma, think, <gasps> what I did ten years ago is going to come back and get me. Okay, well, you don't have to begotten by that thing. 
Because if you, in the meantime, learn how to develop an attitude of infinite goodwill, the Buddha said it's like the difference between taking a, a rock-sized piece, crystal of salt, putting it in a glass of water, as opposed to putting it into a river. You put a huge block of salt into a glass of water, you can't drink it. He said this most people's minds tend to be very limited, and a little bit of suff- even a little bit of suffering comes in, and it gets magnified horribly. If, on the other hand, you've developed your mind to a much larger, more expansive state, it's like putting a rock crystal of salt into the river. You can still drink the water and hardly notice the salt. So there is something you can do about the impact of past actions. So even though there is a pattern, it's not totally deterministic. There is room for free will. On their hand, it's not totally chaotic. It means there is room for learning from your actions. And um, if you've been listening to Larry, Larry talking about the Kalama Sutta and the instructions to Rahula, I understand he's done a lot of talk on these topics. The whole point of the teaching is you can learn from your mistakes. In fact, this is, this is precisely the type of understanding of karma that allows you to learn from your mistakes. If things were totally deterministic, knowledge would have no, knowledge would have no use at all. I mean, if it was totally determined that we were going to be bombed tonight, the knowledge that we are going to be bombed wouldn't help. If it was totally chaotic, that you couldn't discern any patterns at all, you couldn't learn. You know, suppose you know, hitting your sister today gives pleasant results and hitting her tomorrow gives bad results and there's no pattern. There's nothing to learn. They, you know, that kind of, they, they've, they've done experiments with pigeons, putting them into cages with totally chaotic patterns. You know, they, they press a little bar and either they get food or they get an electric shock. And if they can discern a pattern in which bar to press for the electric shock and which bar to press for the food, they're stable, healthy, non-neurotic pigeons. <laughs> If you put them into it and it's totally random, this time they press you know, this bar and they get food, and tomorrow they press that bar and they get electric shock, the pigeons ex- you know, exhibit really erratic behavior. Um, so given the way the Buddha sets this out, it's, you know, it's an ideal explanation for a situation where knowledge really does serve a purpose. You can learn from your past actions, you can learn from your mistakes, apply your knowledge to the present situation, and you find that it works. But it also means that you can, your knowledge will make a difference. So it's pattern, but without determinism. This is basically what the Buddha is teaching. And we could talk for quite a long time about why that's a really healthy way of looking at your actions, that you do have free will, but there there are patterns. Because in the one way, it helps you to relate in the proper way to your own fortunes and misfortunes. In other words, good fortune comes to you, you can't say, okay, I deserve this, I'm just going to enjoy it for all that it's worth. You realize good fortune comes, it can go. What are you going to do with it in the meantime? What's the best use of your good fortune? At the same time, when misfortune comes, you realize, okay, this is not going to be permanent. What good lessons can I learn from misfortune? And John Lee has a good line. He says, you know, people call you a dog. You're in a really good situation. Dogs have no laws. They can do what they want. <laughs> you look, look at your misfortune in the sense that, okay, this is an opportunity to learn some good lessons. One. Secondly, everybody in the human realm is going to meet with misfortune. The fact that you're experiencing misfortune now doesn't mean you're a worse person than anybody else. It's just that your ticket is being called now. Their ticket may be called further down the line. So it's not that you're a worse person than anybody else or a worse person than people who seem to be enjoying good fortune right now. Their good fortune could change at any time, just as your misfortune could change whenever your bad karma runs out. And this is psychologically very healthy. 
for anyone who's suffering. It's also psychologically healthy for people who are enjoying good fortune so that they don't get carried away. It also teaches your proper attitudes towards the fortunes and misfortunes of others. Just because someone is suffering right now doesn't mean that you should just sort of step on them and say you deserve this. You remind yourself that, okay, I've probably been in that same situation in the past. And In fact, the Buddha says you have. And I could easily be in that same situation in the future. How would I want people to help me if I were in that situation? I can, if I'm in the position to provide that help now, why, why don't I provide it? So instead of looking at other people's misfortune as an opportunity to blame them, it's an opportunity for you to do something to help. Second, you see the fortunes of other people. On the one hand, we have a tendency. Of all the four Brahma-viharas, the one that gets the least press is mudita, or you know, sympathetic joy. There tends to be a lot of resentment about other people's good fortunes, but you can realize, okay, this is their opportunity to do good. If they're missing that opportunity to do good, that's, their, that's really their problem. They're really setting themselves up for a fall. So you don't need to be jealous of their good fortune. Okay? So essentially, when, when you meet with fortune and misfortune, you realize, okay, this is an opportunity either to use your good fortune for a good purpose, so that it doesn't just sort of end and leave you high and dry, having committed all sorts of bad karma in the meantime, like some people we know. Also, when bad things happen to you, you realize, okay, this is your opportunity not to, con- not to continue the cycle of harmful behavior. And if you're down and you just lash back, well, that's just going to create more, more problems. The Buddha says, essentially, that in the human realm there are basically eight ways of the world. There's gain and there's loss of gain, status, loss of status, praise and criticism, pleasure and pain. You notice these come in pairs. And that's what drives people crazy. They like the up part of the cycle and they don't like the down part of the cycle. But if you can learn how to use them and realize, okay, these things belong to the world. If people are saying bad things about your name, remember, your name was given to you by the world. It doesn't really belong to you. If your name is in other people's mouths, okay, it belongs to their mouths. It doesn't belong to you. And so if they want to, if they want to you know, say nasty things about your name, you can say, well, that's their karma. I don't have to take that from them or accept it from them. In this way, it, it helps you develop a healthy attitude towards the ups and downs of your life, the ups and downs of other people's lives. Secondly, the issue on the relationship between karma and the teaching on not-self. We usually tend to get the context backwards. We say, okay, in the context of the teaching of not-self, how does karma work? And it doesn't seem to fit. Turn that around. In the context of karma, how does the teaching of not-self work? And you find that it actually works in the sense of realizing that your sense of self is something that you do. The Buddha calls it I-making and my-making. And there's nothing inherently in your experience that's either you or yours. But you apply the word I and you apply the word mine to various things. And what happens as a result? Look at it as an action that you do. Now it turns out that there are contexts in which applying the word I and mine to things is actually very helpful. You sit and meditate. It's a miserable meditation. Now if you didn't have a healthy sense of self, you'd say, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is miserable. If you have a healthy sense of self, you say, okay, maybe I've got to do some work here in order to get some you know, future benefits. You know, the ability to make sacrifices now for future benefits is a sign of a healthy self. The ability to take responsibility for your actions is also a sign of a healthy sense of self, which can help you 
in, in being generous, it helps you in being virtuous, it helps you in meditating. So there are many contexts where the Buddha actually says, okay, develop a good, strong, healthy sense of self. And the teachings to Rahula, when he has Rahula look at his actions and say, okay, before I do it, what are going to be the consequences of these actions? That right there is indicative of a healthy sense of self. That you are aware that your actions have consequences and you're also concerned about them. You're not apathetic and saying, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do right now and to hell with the consequences. That's an unhealthy sense of self. So the early, you know, the basic teachings actually encourage you. Snowballs. Not to throw snowballs at meditation centers, okay? <laughs> However, there comes a point in your meditation, and actually it doesn't have to wait until your meditation. As you define your sense of self, in more and more healthy ways, you begin to find that you disidentify with certain unhealthy patterns of behavior. That's the beginning of the teaching of not-self right there. You know, the Buddha never said whether there is a self or there is no self. He's not talking about a metaphysical doctrine. He's talking about habits we have. Making a self or not making a self. Identifying or not identifying with certain things. And as you start identifying with your healthy patterns of behavior and saying, you know, I really don't want to unidentify with that desire to go out and shoot up some heroin. Okay, that's a teaching of not, an application of the teaching of not-self right there. Even if there was, if the desire does come up, he's like, no, I don't want to go there, that's not me. And as the practice gets more and more refined, you find that your idea of yourself gets more and more refined as well. You know, the, the, the sense of confidence that comes when you actually get the mind to settle down and be still. You learn to identify with that. The sense that I'm, I can never do this. This is this. You know, this is hopeless. I can't do this at all. You don't identify with that. You learn how to drop that kind of thinking, and you find that your sense of self gets more and more refined. Ultimately, you do get to the point where you realize that any sense of self is inherently stressful. But by the time you've gotten there, okay, you've, you've used the sense of self to get you to be virtuous, generous, good meditator. You've used the sense of self as far as it can take you, and then you can let it go. So if you look at the teaching of not-self in the context of karma, it fits. The two teachings go very well. So, and the Buddha himself you know, starts with karma as the beginning of right view, and then you develop from there. So when you get the sense of which is the context and which is the application, you begin to see that the teaching on karma fits very well, provides a really good context for this otherwise kind of confusing teaching on not-self. You know, the old idea, well, if there's no self, who's doing the meditating? If there's no self, you know, who's sitting here? And the Buddha never said that, that there was no self. And because that, for that reason, he never got those dumb questions. <laughs> okay. Finally, the issue of karma, focusing on the past and future. You notice in the text, when the Buddha talks about karma, and even when he's talking about the way karma influences cycles of the universe, you know, the universe forming and the universe deforming back and forth, or long periods of lifetime, he always ends the discussion with the present moment. You say, okay, what is it that forms all these things? What is so powerful in shaping the way the universe runs? Well, it's human action. Where is human action being done? It's being done right here, right now. And so the purpose of this is to focus you on the importance of the choices you're making right now, each and every moment. So this is extremely relevant to the practice because it explains, okay, why are we meditating in the begin with? Secondly, it explains you know, why it's so important to focus on the present moment. I haven't gone into this in too much detail, but 
in the talk. But um, if you examine the Buddha's teachings on, on karma and on causality, they very much re- resemble chaos theory. The idea that there is there are patterns to things, but they're not totally deterministic. And two of the features of chaos theory that are really relevant to our practice is, one, something is called scale invariance, which means that things that you see on a very small scale actually have the same pattern that, of things on the large scale. So as a result, you know, if you look at the present moment, you see in the present moment the same forces that are you know, shaping the universe on a large scale, which is why it's so important to learn about the present moment, because you can learn everything you need to know about how the mind shapes experience from what it's doing right now. You don't have to read the history of the world. And in fact, the Buddha himself doesn't focus you on you know, who caused the universe or what caused the universe, or even if the universe has a beginning. He says, focus on the present moment, because everything you need to know is happening right here. Secondly, in chaos theory, there's something that's called resonances. Um, the idea that complex fields or complex systems will all have these little points where, speak in mathematical terms, where the formula that define the, f- the system will hit points where everything is being divided by zero. Now, you know what happens if you divide by zero. Your computer breaks down. That's where you get little computer glitches, and it says, sorry, error of, you know, whatever number has occurred. And they put a little bomb on your, on your, on your screen. It's because something in the computer got divided by zero and just stopped. Well, that happens in real life. In fact, the Buddha said, this is why you can use karma to put an end to karma. In other words, there are, there are, there are points in our experience where you're basically, once you get to that point, you're out of the system. Nirvana. End of suffering. You know, this this complex we have that's composed of you know, ordinary pleasures and pains that are conditioned, if you actually use the condition principle, it can get you to these resonance points where you're out, which is what actually we're practicing for. The Buddha said you can use karma ultimately to put an end to karma or put an end to conditionality. I mean, it sounds an ordinarily linear causality would say it's impossible. You know, use conditioned things to get to the unconditioned, it doesn't work. But in nonlinear causality, that, that's how it works. There are these sort of escape points. And in fact, the more complex the system, and the human mind, is prob- as Buddha said, is the most complex thing on earth. Lots of resonance points if you know where to look for them. You have to look, if you look right around the point of intention in the present moment, you'll find these resonance points. That's why, again, why the meditation focuses so much on the present moment. Because there's a point in the present moment where there's an opportunity for release. So, so that, in terms of the content of the teaching... Again, the, the teaching is not deterministic. Secondly, it is psychologically healthy. Thirdly, it relates very well to the teaching on not-self. If you re- regard karma as the context and not-self as an action or te- strategies of self and not-self. Because yourself is basically a strategy. How to maximize happiness. And you realize it's not one single strategy, it's lots of little strategies. And what the Buddha is trying to teach you to do is look carefully at those strategies. Where do they work? Where do they not work? And if they don't work, drop that particular way of identifying yourself and focus on the ones that really do work. You'll be happier. The people around you will be happier. And as a result, because of the nature of this non-deterministic or causality, you can actually gain release from suffering. Be focusing on this one issue. Where are you causing stress and suffering right now? Can you learn to stop? So that, in terms of the content, 
is what the Buddha actually had to say about the teaching on karma, and it fits very well with his other teachings. At the same time, it's extremely relevant to what we're doing in meditation. As for some of the other attacks on the teaching of karma, first about the provenance, the idea that it's picked up willy-nilly from Indian culture, if you actually look at the way karma was taught in other traditions at the time of the Buddha, you'll find a huge range of teachings, everything from the universe is totally mechanical and deterministic to the other extreme, that okay, everything is totally chaotic. And since things are totally chaotic, you grab whatever happiness you can right now, because tomorrow you may die. So there are these two extremes, and in between there are all kinds of things. The idea that karma is totally physical. The Jains taught this. They thought that all your actions are totally physical, therefore if you want to gain, put, put an end to action, all you do is just stop doing anything. And it ended up in a, in a course of very slow suicide by starvation. You just lie down, don't eat anything, don't move. And as a result, they said you would, you would gain release. Well, the Buddha's main teaching, of course, is that okay, karma is mental. It's your intentions. So that's one big difference right there. Secondly, there was the teaching of the, the, the Brahmins that karma is ritualistic. You, know, you do things according to the ritual patterns, and that'll take care of everything. I've gotten into arguments with some professors of religion. They say that you know, I'm kind of really down on ritual, this sort of ritualistic attitude towards life. You know, if, you can get, if you can get all the little balls of butter in the right row, that's going to you know, help the universe, or it's going to help you know, overcome your enemies or whatever. And you know, there's a really, I think there's kind of a dishonest attitude in there. You, you learn how to play the game and everything's going to come out all right, and it doesn't matter what your intention is. Whereas the Buddha said, it really does depend totally on your intention. Learn to purify your intentions, you'll be a lot happier. And then finally, as I said, the Buddha's teachings on karma were not deterministic, nor were they totally chaotic. So you can't say that Buddhism just picked up a doctrine of karma from its environment and happened to drop it here when it came along. It's actually intrinsic to the whole teaching, the way the Buddha taught about action. Third attack on karma is its status as a belief. Um, as I said, the this particular attack says Buddhism is something that you do, not something that you believe. Therefore, belief is out of place. The second way of expressing the attack is that everything that the Buddha teaches is based on empirical proof. We all know the Kalama Sutta. You know, if you, you don't accept something simply because it's in the text or simply because your teacher says it, but you have to look at, okay, if you put it into practice, what do you do? What are the results that come when you know for yourself? Well, that's not really an empirical proof. It's called a pragmatic proof. The difference is, okay, if you actually believe that your actions make a difference, okay, how are you going to act? You're going to be a lot more careful about your actions. If you believe that your actions didn't make a difference, how are you going to act? Do whatever you want, you know, do whatever you feel like doing. Okay, that right there is where the Buddha is basing his, pro his proof for the teaching on karma, that what you believe is going to have an impact on what you do. So what kind of belief is going to have the best impact on your actions? That's called a pragmatic proof. It's not quite empirical. An empirical proof, we'd have to go out and show that you know, someone who did something over here gets this result over there, and you could actually trace it. And then someone else could come along and follow the same experiment and get the same results. That you could actually trace it down. You could figure out, okay, what's the mechanism that brings karma from, say, when you were a child to when you are an adult? And exactly where is the karma stored in the meantime? You've heard about you know, the, the storehouse consciousness? That was an attempt to actually answer this question. 
Your, each karma is a little seed, and you put it in the storehouse. And then after a while, it finally comes out, it sprouts out of your storehouse and, and brings you your karma. Well, the Buddha actually said, if you try to trace these things, you're going to go crazy. Um, literally, that's what he said. And he, you will experience madness and vexation, are his words. <laughs> Which to me sounds like craziness. Uh, and of course, what happened in later Buddhist philosophy is they tried to answer the questions that the Buddha said, don't go there. And people just can't resist that. I personally like to know that there's a question that's not going to go anywhere. I can just leave it alone and focus on things that are more important. But his, his proof is pragmatic. Look, if you believe in this particular teaching, how will you act? Will it be actually conducive to a practice that leads to the end of suffering? And as the Buddha said, if you believe in a deterministic universe, that kind of belief is not going to be conducive to any kind of practice. You say, hey, you know, it's, it's in the stars. I'm, you know, I'm either going to be awakened or I'm not going to be awakened, so let the stars take care of that. Secondly, if you believe that the universe is chaotic, again, there's, nothing, there's no pattern of action that you could follow. You just kind of you sit and meditate and wait for enlightenment to come and whap you across the head. As someone, in fact, there's, there actually are schools of meditation that say you know, enlightenment is a spiritual accident. You sit there and it's going to happen someday, but you can't do anything about it. The Buddha never taught that. There's an, actually a course of action that you can take. If you believe that there is a creator God who is responsible for your happiness and pleasure, again, that belief doesn't conduce to you being, doing the practice. Again, it's all up to God. There was one time when Ajahn Sawat, who's one of my teachers, was teaching an IMS. And halfway through the retreat, one of the retreatants said, you know, this Buddhism would really be a lot better if it had a God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I, what the words he said, I think you guys would have a better religion here if you had a God. <laughs> there was a Thai woman in the audience who really took offense at the you guys part. Um, and, and, and so John Swat well asked why. And he said, well, it will sort of give you encouragement that even though the meditation is not doing, going well right now, at some point God's going to kick in and going to give you a little help. He's going to take you know, pity on you. And John Swat had a really good response to that one, I thought. He said, if there were a God who would arrange it that when I eat a mouthful of food, everybody else in the world gets fed, I would bow down to that God. That would be intelligent design. <laughs> but that's not the way it is. Okay. So, essentially what the Buddha is saying, okay, if you believe that okay, there is an impact of your past actions on the present so that you don't get worried about things that you can't change, so that you can focus on the things that you can change in your present action, if you held that belief, You'd be a lot more careful. You'd be a lot more. You tend to be more mindful. You tend to be more generous, more virtuous, more understanding of other people. In other words, you'd be a better person. And for that reason, it's a good belief to try to take on and, and sort of try out, because that's what the Buddha says. Everything that you do in the practice is taking something as a working hypothesis. There's a sutta where he talks about an elephant hunter. The sutta starts out with this. One young, this man coming to visit him and is very impressed with the Buddha. He's like, gosh, this guy is really sharp. So he goes home, meets a friend, and he tells his friend, this Buddha is really awakened. And the friend says, well, how do you know? And the man says, well, it's like going into an elephant forest and you see a big elephant footprint in the ground. You know, this is a big bull elephant. In the same way that you see the, the sort of the footprints of awakening in the Buddha. And so the friend is impressed. So he goes to visit the Buddha and he tells the Buddha what his first friend said. And the Buddha says, well, you know, that's not really the proper use of the elephant foot simile. 
I'll, I'll show you the proper use of that. And see, first he starts out, he says, okay, there's an elephant hunter going into that forest looking for a bull elephant. Now he comes across a large set of elephant footprints. Now, because he's an experienced hunter, he re- doesn't jump to the conclusion that this is a big bull elephant. And the question is, why is that? He says, because there are dwarf females with big feet. <laughs> it might be one of theirs. <laughs> so you follow it along, and then you see these slash marks up in the trees. Again, the elephant, experienced elephant hunter doesn't come to the conclusion that this is a big bull elephant. And why is that? Because there are tall females with tusks. It might be one of theirs. And he gives a few more details, and he says, finally, you come to the clearing, and you see the elephant. Okay. And you know, okay, this is the elephant, for sure, because you see it. Now he says, in your practice, the only point where you really know that this is the elephant is when you've had your first taste of the deathless, what they call stream entry. Up to that point, and then the Buddha goes through a long series of you know, developing virtue and developing all the jhanas and developing you know, knowledge, you know, remembering your past lifetimes and seeing all the universe... You know, all the beings in the universe dying, being reborn in terms of their karma. So even that kind of vision is just footprints and scratch marks. The actual sight of the elephant is when you yourself see the, the unconditioned through the practice. And I mean, that's the real proof. Up to that point, the Buddha doesn't offer any real proof. He says there's a good pragmatic reasons for adopting karma as a working hypothesis. And also, the, if you took the belief that, you know, I really don't know about karma, you know, not knowing, not being willing to commit to a particular idea of what human action can do, again, that's not conducive to doing the practice. So the good pragmatic reasons for saying, well, let's give it a try. Let's take it as a working hypothesis. Simply being an agnostic and saying, well, I don't know, that's not going to get you. You say, I don't know, but this sounds like it makes sense. It sounds worthwhile. Let's follow it. Now, that's the attitude that the Buddha recommends. Finally, the fourth attack on karma is that there are suspect psychological motives for wanting to believe in it. One is that it's consoling, and it's childish to want a consoling belief. Secondly, is this question of the desire for fairness. You know, you you don't want to see something, you know, like a little kid, your your friend takes your truck away, you want to see lightning strike, you know. (laughs) And then finally, that it makes you complacent. That you know things are going to work out in the end. I've never figured that one out. If someone says you know karma makes you complacent, that you know things are just going to work out, work their way out. Question is: Is karma really consoling? It's kind of scary. You know that you don't know what your past karma is. Things could be going along pretty well, and all of a sudden you know bang, something could happen. And basically, what this does is it makes you non-complacent. And the Buddha keeps talking about. You know, the, the obvious, you know, that death could happen at any time. Now, I'm out in California, I could say, you know, the, the, you know, the big earthquake could hit at any moment. We don't know. I don't know what you have in Boston. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Aside from terrorist attacks, I guess. <laughs> could happen. And the Buddha always says, you know, you, it could happen at any time. I mean, a little clot in your, in your bloodstream could suddenly get wanderlust and start wandering around and getting lodged in your heart. And that would be the end. And the question is, are you ready to go? And if you're not, okay, you, there are things that you can do to get ready. You know, train your mind. Develop more mindfulness, develop more alertness, develop more discernment. So that when, when misfortune comes, you're ready for it. So the teaching is, does, not, does not induce complacency. And not as, neither is all that consoling. Finally, the whole question of fairness. The Buddha doesn't say karma is fair. 
in fact, some of the examples he gave in connection with that teaching I, I gave you just now about the, the water and the salt crystal. One of the examples is that the difference between if a rich person steals a goat and a poor person steals a goat, who's going to go to prison? <laughs> and the, goat, the goat may not survive to go to prison. <laughs> The Buddha doesn't take the person as his basic unit. He just divides things up into actions and results. Okay. This action was done at that particular time, and this result particular comes up maybe this lifetime. And the question of whether it's fair or not doesn't enter into the equation. You may be a much nicer person now than the time when you, when you murdered your wife you know, in a previous lifetime. But still it could happen. You know, the results of that particular karma could come back to you. So it, again, the Buddha's not saying that it's all that fair. And as you said, when you really think about it, it says don't be complacent. You might be president now, but it might, you know, you can get impeached easily. (laughs) Or as recent recent events have shown, you might be a good friend of the vice president, but that... (laughs) That doesn't... Apparently, he's being charged for not, not having a game stamp on his hunting license. I guess what is it? You have to have a you have to have a game stamp in order to shoot lawyers in Texas. I don't know. <laughs> so, because just because you're a lobbyist and well placed doesn't mean you're safe. Okay. 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 The real reasons that the Buddha advises for developing, for adopting his teaching on karma is one: it makes the end of suffering possible through your actions. As I said earlier, it's there are patterns in life that you can learn from, but they're not deterministic. You can be the master of the patterns. You can learn from the patterns, learn from your past mistakes, so that your actions get more and more refined until they finally lead to the end of suffering. And there's no other way of explaining human action that can allow for that. One. So that's his prime reason for recommending that you adopt it. Secondly, instead of being a childish belief, it's actually asking you to commit. You know, a large part of maturity is realizing that you have to commit to a particular course of action and see it through if you're really going to see any results in life. I have a friend who's an author. She wrote a book set in China in the 18th century, and it's a long, involved plot. But my favorite scene in the book is one where this, this young woman has lost her mother. Her mother's died. And the father is promising up and down that he's not going to remarry. He's going to be faithful to the memory of his wife. And within six months, he goes down south and he comes back with a courtesan as his new wife. And the girl is upset. But the courtesan is no dummy. She sets about to being a good mother to the young girl. And one evening, they're playing chess together. And as they're playing chess, the woman's saying to the young girl, okay, if you really want to be happy in life, you have to decide that there's one thing you want more than anything else and being willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. Commitment. And the girl, like any girl, is sort of listening, half listening to her mother, half not listening to her mother, but she's beginning to notice that the mother is a very sloppy chess player, losing pieces here, losing pieces there. And the girl gets a little aggressive. She says, ah, I'm a grandmother, she's a lousy chess player. And so immediately falls into into the mother's trap, checkmate. In other words, okay, if you, you have to be willing to lose a few pawns in order to check, win checkmate. I mentioned to my friend that I really liked that, that that was my favorite scene in the whole book. And she says, well, you know, she's a, she was a professor in a college down in Virginia, and as an author, every time she 
prints a new book, she gets invited around to the alumni clubs, and she has to take an incident out of the book and read to the alumni clubs something that makes sense, some sort of a self-contained incident. And she realized that that was the only self-contained incident in the whole book, so she read that. And after the third alumni club, she had to stop because nobody liked the message. Everyone wants to win at chess and keep all their pawns. Again, I think this is one of the reasons deep down inside where we don't like the teaching on karma. It's asking us to commit. But look at what you're being asked to commit to, the fact that your actions make a difference, that being careful in your actions is going to pay off. And also that looking at other people's misfortune, you have the opportunity, it's, you see it as your opportunity to help, not your opportunity to step, step on the further. Now, the, these are the kinds of attitudes you would like to teach your kids. These are good attitudes that you would like to adopt yourself. You'd like to see the rest of the human race adopt these attitudes as well. So you're being asked to commit to something that's really good, really desirable. Also, the Buddha is asking you to, because of the teachings and karma, there's the maturity of learning to look at your actions in terms of their consequences and realizing that just because you like to do something doesn't mean it's going to give good results or that you don't like to do something doesn't mean that you should avoid it. The things that you like to do that will give good results, things you don't like to do will give bad results. And a good part of being a mature person is learning how to negotiate those problems. In fact, there's one point where the Buddha said, this is your test of wisdom. Not whether you understand emptiness, not whether you understand dependent origination. It's whether you're able to get yourself up in the morning to meditate when it's cold and dark outside. And if your wisdom can't help you do that, it's not worth much. Wisdom for the Buddha is practical. So when we look at the you know sort of the attack on karma, you realize a lot of it is based on a misunderstanding of the teaching thinking that it's teaching determinism, teaching that it's teaching defeatism, that it's teaching sense of guilt, placing blame on people for their misfortunes. It's not the case. Once you understand the content of the belief, of the teaching, then you learn how to relate to it in the proper emotional way as well, is realizing that, okay, your present actions are really important. Learn how to focus on those. No matter what the situation is, look at it as an opportunity to do, do something good. It's like being a good cook. I mean, ordinary good cooks you know, can make something good out of good ingredients. A really good cook can make something good out of anything. I had a student one time who was a cook in Singapore, and the club where he was a cook was what had a fixed-price dinner and had cream of asparagus soup, and they totally underestimated the number of people who were going to come. And so they were running out of cream of asparagus soup, and they had no more asparagus in the kitchen. So what he did was he told all the other cooks to get out of the kitchen because he didn't want them to see what he was going to do. <laughs> and then he went down to the, into the garbage and got out all the parings and things off the asparagus, put those in the, in the what do you call that, the, the blender, yeah, the Cuisinart, yeah. and put it on extra fine <laughs> and made a really good asparagus soup and nobody knew the difference. You know. That's a good cook. okay? And... The Buddha is encouraging you to take that same attitude to your life. And no matter what, you know, what, what hand you're dealt, learn how to play it well. Things are going well in your life, don't get complacent. Things are going poorly, don't be discouraged. There's always a, possi- you know, there's always a possibility that things will change. It's when you understand the teaching and you also understand how to relate to it in the proper way, 
You're not going to fall prey to the people who are attacking karma. You, you understand what's going on. And you learn how to use the teaching in a way that's actually useful and helpful in all aspects of the practice. So, that's the talk. I'm supposed to give you... <laughs> I'm supposed to give you five minutes to go, if you want to go. So, thank you for your attention. Are there any questions? Yes. The best way to deal with that first is to try to develop as much concentration and make it a very comfortable kind of concentration where you feel at home in the present moment so that when that kind of insight comes, it's not alienating or it's not threatening, let's put it that way. Um, Because the whole purpose of the teaching on how to prepare for death is based on the idea, okay, death is not the end. And the more mindful you are, the better you can handle the transition. So there is, there is a value in learning how to be mindful, learning how to be discerning as what's coming up in the mind. And my, my own near-death experience was when I was electrocuted um, several years back. And to make a long story short, it happened just in the, you know, the snap of a finger. But my experience of it was like it was five minutes. Your mind starts really spinning very fast, because here you are holding on to this thing that's electrocuting you, and you can't move. And your first, your first thought is, my gosh, I'm, I'm too young to die. And second was, I'm going to die from my own stupidity. I should have checked the, phone, checked the electricity. <laughs> and then finally, mindfulness clicked in and said, hey, wait a minute, we've been practicing for this. You know, whatever comes up in your mind, don't go with it. And I just, whatever comes up, just watch, 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 and then you'll be prepared. Of not self, or whether it's just sort of 
It's it's one of those issues. The question about the question about how basically how rebirth works. Do you need a soul for rebirth to happen? And the Buddhist question is: It's not some. He doesn't want to explain sort of the metaphysical mechanics behind it, as opposed to the psychological mechanics, which is what is it that you're experiencing right now that's going to lead across? And he says it's craving. Now, if you ask the question, who's craving, what's craving, he says, don't go there. Because that, that distracts you from the actual thing where you can make a difference. And this is, this is very typical of the Buddhist teachings, that okay, there are so many things that could get you distracted from actually solving the problem. And he says, really, in your best interest, not to go there. Focus instead on, okay, what, what sort of psychological impulse do I have right now that would lead on to another rebirth? And he says, it's craving. And so if you can learn to practice so that you put an end to that particular type of craving that just keeps wanting to go on and on and on to the next, 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 next moment, okay, then you've solved the problem of rebirth without having to get into the metaphysics. Because you know, he never says that there is a soul or that there is not a soul. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those questions he said, either way you answer it, you're going to get sidetracked. Mm-hmm. So, so think of the teaching not so much as a body of and what we usually think about a religion is someone that's going to explain the mechanics of the whole universe and sets everything out. And the Buddhist teaching is more as kind of a problem-solving approach to, okay, there's people are suffering. This is why they're suffering. Focus on why you're suffering, and that's the end of it. Then you can go home and do whatever you want with the rest of your life. But once you've gotten this straightened out, that's, that's all that really matters. There was a, a book that came out last year. Many of you might have seen it. It was called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And it was, it was advertised as a book that says, you know, you learn to trust your intuitions and it'll carry you through. You don't have to do a lot of analysis. It seems like it was designed to sell in certain, you know, certain centers in, in Washington. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting too much into that tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just reading The Nation this afternoon. <laughs> okay. But what the book was actually about was saying that okay, the problems that we face are best solved by focusing on really precisely what the, the, the cause of the problem is and not letting ourselves get distracted by extraneous details. I mean, they gave one, one example, which every time I mention this to anybody who's a couple, gets, they, they kind of shivers. They have this one group of psychologists who can take videos of a couple um, and they, they, have, they hook them up you know, for their heartbeat and their, you know, the amount of sweat they have in their palms and all these other physiological reactions. And they ask them to talk about a you know, minor issue, a minor source of you know, disagreement in their lives, like a dog in the, in the apartment or something like that. And they take a 15-minute video. And then what they do is they take about three minutes out of that video and look at it very, very carefully for just a few markers. And they can tell whether or not that couple is going to be together in the next 15 years. All it takes is three minutes. That's in the book. That's in the book, yeah. And so, you know... If and, and the Buddhist approach is very similar to that. You know, look at what's really precisely the problem. Don't let yourself get distracted. And let, they had this, gave this one thing about the couple was really cute and they're really nice, but it turns out they, they really despise each other. <laughs> and the psychologist could pick that up in three minutes. And so don't let you get, get to, you know, distracted by how cute they are and how much you like they are. Look at, okay, look at these particular signs. And the Buddha said the big sign of rebirth in your life is craving. That's what you've got to focus on. The type of craving for sensuality, the craving for to keep on being, or the keep craving to stop being. And work on those three cravings, okay, then you've solved the problem. 
questions? Yes. In the teaching of karma, how do you how do you handle cases like of self delusion in terms of your intention? Or also, there's a lot of people in history who think they're doing humanity this great, this great favor, like George Bush, okay, mm -hmm. starting a huge war mm -hmm. okay, because this is a great thing to do. Okay, so now if the intention is what we're talking about, Bush would have this tremendous karma because he believes in himself. He believes all this stuff. On the other hand, somebody on the other on the outside might say, "These terrible consequences mm -hmm. of this action." So how do we handle those kinds of cases? Well, there's a distinction between skillful karma and good uh, skillful intentions and good intentions, or well-meaning intentions. Well-meaning intentions can be extremely diluted, and that makes them unskillful. And and this gets back to there's I don't know if you've read there's a sutta where the, the Buddha is teaching his son seven-year-old son how to look at his actions. And basically, it's a way of overcoming delusion. As you look before you do something, ask yourself, what are the consequences going to be? Secondly, while you're doing it, look at the actual consequences. If you see that they're harming anybody, stop. Third, when the action is done, look at the long-term consequences. And if you realize, okay, it was a mistake, you actually harm people, you, one, go and talk it over with somebody else who's practicing, and then two, you resolve you're not going to make that mistake again. That requires a lot of integrity, the ability to see your own mistakes. Now, a certain person that we know very well has claimed that he's proud of the fact that he doesn't think back on his past mistakes. And that's precisely the problem. And that's the, de the Buddhist definition not only of a fool, but also of a very deluded, dishonest person. Because it does take a certain amount of integrity to admit, okay, that, I made a mistake, I'm not going to repeat that again. And also, yet at the same time, recognizing your mistakes, not getting tied up in re you know guilt and debilitating shame. But one thing I'm still not clear on your answer is: so if a person has the intention to do good, mm -hmm. right? See, my problem, I guess, is that Bush would say, "Well, the war okay, kill all these people, right? But in the long run, things will be better on the planet, okay, because we've done this." And I, I have a hard time figuring out how. It's 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 very bad karma. <laughs> really? <laughs> that that's the tip off right there. The, you know, the, the the killing and the torture and all those other things. That's that's a big tip off, because. It, when the, Buddha, when the Buddha starts out talking about what's skillful and unskillful, he starts out with some very basic kind of sort of rule of thumb rules. Um, and I like to make the comparison with going into the wilderness. And when you go into the wilderness, there's some things, there are do's and don'ts. You know, a bear charges you, don't run. Even though it's your first impulse is to run, they say don't run, because the bear will back off. And the Buddha's precepts are like that. He's saying don't kill, don't steal. Don't have illicit sex. Don't lie. Don't take intoxicants. These things are inherently unskillful. And then, then working from the, from these basic inherent ideas. Okay, then then you further refine what counts as skillful and unskillful. But these are the tip-offs. It's like going to the wilderness. Okay, they, if you ever if you ever read instructions on how to deal with bears in the wilderness, they're really funny. At first, they start with okay, the bear charges you, don't run. If it turns out the bear does attack you, lie down and play dead. 
even if the bear is chewing on you, (laughs) he's probably just chewing out of curiosity. (laughs) Nine times out of ten. And the instructions are, okay, if you keep your wits about you while you're being chewed by the bear, um, if you lie very still, you'll be able to tell, okay, if the bear is chewing out of curiosity or chewing out of hunger. Now, if he's chewing out of hunger, fight back. This requires a lot of mindfulness. (laughs) But, you know, there are general rules, and then then you get to the more specific details. But in working into the details requires a lot of mindfulness and requires a lot of integrity. <coughs> Particularly in, in the decisions in your life. Okay, admitting you made a mistake and say, okay, I'm not going to repeat that mistake. And there, you, you see these certain patterns, you know, people who make these mistakes and then will not admit them. And as a result, they keep making bigger and bigger and bigger mistakes. And the fact that they're not admitting them, that's the bad karma. I mean, all the information is there, and they're refusing to look at the information. And it tends to be kind of a a snowballing effect. There's an interesting sutta where the Buddha says, the type of person who, for the sake of power, will unfairly deprive people of their wealth, unfairly imprison people, torture people, kill people, for the sake of power, turns out that they have problems dealing with truth. If someone lies to them, they don't want to go into whether they're being lied to or not. If someone tells the truth, they don't want to hear it. They themselves have problems reporting the truth. It's a snowballing effect. It just getting you know, from one unskillful act just leads to more and more and more because they're unwilling to look at their actions and the consequences. Yes. Um, I, I I have the experience of seeing a mistake mm-hmm. that I made. And seeing <coughs> suffering it causes myself and others, mm-hmm. and uh, resolving not to do it again. Mm-hmm. And then I'm in a similar situation, and the trigger gets pushed and bent. Mm-hmm. You know? So it just doesn't seem to me to be, you know, I mean, it seems to me to be a process. You know? It doesn't seem to be to be something you can just all of a sudden decide, mm-hmm. I'm going to stop making this mistake. Well, it's important first to make that decision. I'm going to try to stop. Okay. And then if you find that you can't stop the next time around, say, I, I, need, I don't understand why I'm doing this. And you want to look a little bit deeper and ask yourself, what kind of gratification am I getting out of this? Because if you weren't getting any gratification out of that kind of behavior, you wouldn't do it. I think it's habitual. For example, I'm impatient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't seem... But the thing is, there is, and that, you've got to look look into that. You know, whether it's you know, the reason it's habitual is at some point in your life when it when it seemed to you know get things done, or create a certain impression in yourself about your own self image that you don't want to let go of. And the Buddha said, you know, to understand things, one you have to see, you know, when the desire to do that thing arises. Also be able to see how it passes away. Thirdly, learn how to see what's the gratification in following that desire. 
Four, what's the drawback of following the desire? And then five, once you see these four things, then you'll see the way to stop following that desire. So look at you, you look at that particular pattern. Which which parts of those that pattern have you been able to discern out of those four things? Where the desire comes, how the desire passes away, the gratification in following it, and the drawbacks. You, you know, you may be focusing so much on the drawbacks that you actually miss the gratification. And if you miss that part, you can't really, you don't totally understand why you're doing it. So give that a try. Okay. Question here. Uh, yes. Would you Okay, one of the worst things you can do is get tied up in guilt and remorse, because that makes you less willing to admit your mistakes, because it's so painful to admit them. The Buddha says you reflect on the fact that remorse is not going to undo what you did. Guilt is not going to undo what you did. The best thing that can be asked of you as a human being is that you're not going to mista- you're not going to repeat the mistake. So the guilt and the remorse are actually debilitating. So that you'd be in a better chance of not repeating the mistake just by not giving in to those feelings. And again, that we, we get some sort of gratification out of them. There's some psych- you know, little kids have this belief that if I feel guilty enough, they're not going to punish me. And we carry that to the grave many times. We don't have to. So again, look for the you know, both the, the, the drawbacks of the guilt and also look at the gratification that comes from the guilt so you understand it. And then see that it does come and go, come and go. It's not, it's not this solid block of feeling. And that way it helps you get a handle on it. There's a question over here. Yes. Uh, there's, some, there's some actions, there's some decisions that are made that are very so complex in terms of their consequences. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see whether they, they're a mistake or not. This gentleman over here was asking about war in Iraq. Um, some years ago, a group of reporters asked Mao Zedong, when you follow the French Revolution, he said, well, it's just too early to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I always remember that little mm-hmm. story because uh, we, we, we do, perhaps we are too quick mm-hmm. to decide what's good and what's bad in terms of the consequences of our actions. Mm-hmm. Well, starting your day-to-day actions are a lot easier. What's that? Your day-to-day yeah. actions are a lot easier. And those are the ones that you're being asked to be responsible for. Well, look at the means. And if you're going to kill people to stop killing, that doesn't work. Yes? Um, going back to this gentleman's uh, explanation of you know, how he's dealing with certain things, um, as I was listening to him, I thought how I identified with what he was saying within myself. Um, reactions. Mm-hmm. I call them reactions. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been looking at my practice in terms of understanding the reactions just about in the four ways that you actually talked about. Because I read that you know, when someone cuts in front of me um, on the highway and I get very upset, I'm just needlessly causing myself suffering because I have some sort of belief that means I should have priority or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I work on these, on, on it, and, I, and I'm coming to the question of when I got confused about something you said tonight. 
I see that those reactions, in a certain sense, those that list, and there must be a list, um, as my conditioned self. I mean, these are the things that were inculcated in, in culture, in upbringing, in values placed at, at a very young age or whatever else. And I see my, my, my role in following the Four Noble Truths, you know, to identify the reactions and try to make these changes. And I came to the opinion, and I've heard the opinion expressed here, that there really is no self. And I began to believe that the construct of myself was my understanding of these conditioned responses or reactions, okay? That those beliefs that form the reactions are in fact the self, and that there is no self. So my question for you is, you're saying, you know, you were talking about the fact that there is sort of a self. Well, that you keep making one. Yeah. Well, could you talk about that difference between the, that there should be, that there is no self, is there a self or not? Well, the Buddha never answered that question. But what he points out, okay, it's a type of action. Self-identification is a type of action, and it can be looked at like any other action. Okay. Is it skillful or is it not skillful? And if you see that your particular way of identifying with that particular habit is unskillful, you can decide not to go there. You can learn to... So it's, it's a choice that you're making. And so you can cho- choose to be more skillful. Yes? Uh, question on path to monasticism. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like in this time and place it's not quite as easy as um, just going to the local monastery and yeah. becoming a monk. There's all kinds of economic uh, concerns or travel concerns or all these sorts of things. I just wonder your thoughts on, um, I guess, the balance of just... The ticket to San Diego is not that not that expensive. <laughs> if, if that's the only issue, that's not really a big one. You work a little bit and you earn the money to buy the ticket, and then you go. Usually, there are a lot other a lot of other issues that are getting in the way as well. You know, parental permission. Um, Largely the concern that you know if I go there, I'm, you know, it's not going to work out. I'm going to waste my time. Those are those are actually bigger, bigger issues. You took that question in a very different direction from where I thought it was going to go. Well, uh, I suppose part of it too is the, is the broader, of mm-hmm. course, the, the economic concern is just a, it's a tiny piece. I guess mm-hmm. it's just. Mm-hmm. A, I mean, the big issue is that our culture is it doesn't have much room for monasticism. And again, this is one of those things where you can decide whether you want to be conditioned by those general values or you want to make a break. Because even in Thailand, where where the culture does generally have room for monasticism, it doesn't mean every family has room for all their sons to go out and become monastics. Sometimes you're fighting against your parents even over there. But it's up to you to decide. Is this something you really want to do with your life? If so, well, to hell with the general general values of the culture. And do what you th- you know what seems to be the right thing to do, the best way to live your life, because it is your life, you know. So think about it in those terms.
Yes. Well, the Buddha said the beginning of wisdom is asking, okay, what when I do it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? One, focusing on your own actions, and two, realizing that there are sort of gradations of happiness in life. And then sort of looking at what the Buddha's teachings are on being skillful. They start with being generous, being virtuous, and then meditating. Which areas of those life? Which of those areas in your life need work? And focus on those. Those are good places to start. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Either way. I said in mathematical terms, it means the system, at that particular point in the system, something is being divided by zero and you leave the system. Um, um, in computers, I mean, this is, this is where computer glitches come from. The computer programs are so complex and so many different equations are working together that every now and then something gets divided by zero and the thing just goes blank. Um, in your mind, you'll find that you get the end of these little worlds of thought. And you actually pull yourself out by just focusing on the fact, okay, I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? And suddenly you're out. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a resonance point in your mind. Okay. okay. It's just that there are bigger resonance points. And some, some resonance points are bigger than others, let's put it that way. But you're doing this all the time. Just to remind you, say, hey, wait a minute, this is, you know, I'm not in, in Hawaii right now. I'm in, I'm in Boston. This is crazy. And then you're out. Any question? I was just going to ask, add to what you were asking, this, mm. even though this is a different question. Um, is there, there's that sort of smaller microcosm, but then you're also talking about sort of a macrocosm leaving the system. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, it's, it's the little macrocosms show you the pattern. It's just that you're getting closer and closer and closer to what, what's the intention that's keeping you aware of space and time. Because the, the, the Buddha's word for both of these states, you know, in, in sort of the little worlds you have in your mind, and then just the general world you're experiencing, he uses the same word, pava, which we usually translate as becoming. And to get to the sort of the, in, and again, because your experience of everything involves some intention, you're trying to find that particular intention that's keeping you, keeping you here. As opposed to the little one that's keeping you in the fantasy about Hawaii. Because the first one is a lot deeper which requires a lot of concentration and mindfulness. Another example is what they call neurotic breakthroughs, when people are going through a really bad, bad, bad depressive state, and all of a sudden something snaps inside. Like, you know, well, how do I know this? Or, and it can, it, can be, it can be very impressive, but it's similar to an awakening in the sense that you've pulled yourself out of a, of a particular world, but you haven't gone deep enough to be a full awakening. And that sometimes they call that, and they call it makyo in some in some traditions. This kind of delusive awakening, where you've been through kind of a dark night of the soul, and all of a sudden the clouds part, and everything is really nice. And that's it's the same pattern, but it's it, the actual awakening goes deeper than that. Yeah, your other question. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this relates to what are called the four Brahma Viharas. You know, that you, you feel com- you know, goodwill for everybody, you want everybody to be happy or find true happiness. Which means, ultimately, you want everybody to be able to find happiness inside. Secondly, you see people are suffering, so you feel compassion for them. And if you can help, you want to help. If you see people are happy, you want them to continue in that happiness. And if there's anything you can do to help them to continue to be happy, fine. However, there are going to come cases where people are suffering and you can't help them, either because they won't accept your help or they won't accept your advice. And that's where you have to say, okay, that's their karma. I know, but it's better to err on the side of compassion, but also to be sensitive to when people are resistant to what you have to say. You say, okay, I'm just not going to go there. And that's one of those things... You know, there's no silver bullet that will guarantee that every time it's going to be right. Again, it's being willing to listen, willing to make mistakes, and learn from the mistakes. That one of the nice things I think about, one of the things I've always appreciated about Buddhism, it was, you know, a religion founded by somebody who started out imperfect, so he knows what it's like to be imperfect. You know? It's not some god coming down and saying, "Okay, you guys got to do this, 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 this." God's never known what it's like to be a human being. And secondly, like in the, in the Buddha's instructions to his son Rahula, he's not telling Rahula not to make mistakes. He's telling Rahula, if you make a mistake, this is how you learn from it. <coughs> and that's a lot, a lot more humane teaching. We're all going to make mistakes. But it's, it's simply up to us to learn, you know, master how to learn from them. That's the best that can be asked of us. It's nine o'clock. It's supposed to end. So thank you very much for your attention. I hope this was helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.